Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast with me, your host, James Clark. On this month's podcast, we're joined by Sir Charles Walker, MP for Broxbourne, Leila Boosber, Senior Events Officer at the Coalition for Global Prosperity, and Tom Tugendhat, who's the Member of Parliament for Tunbridge and Marling. Our first guest is Sir Charles Walker, MP. Sir Charles was elected to the House of Commons in May 2005 and represents the interests of Broxbourne in Parliament. Since being elected, he's been involved in numerous local campaigns and in particular has championed the issue of mental health. He was appointed an OBE in the 2015 New Year's Honours List for political service and was appointed a KBE in 2019 for political and public service. His parliamentary record demonstrates that he's not afraid to tackle difficult or controversial issues. So Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'd like to start by asking you about your direct experiences with the armed forces, either professionally and in your role as an MP or personally. Well, I have to say, uh, both professionally and personally, they're they're very limited, my direct experience. Obviously, I have friends and colleagues who have served in the armed forces, and I listen closely to what they have to say, what their concerns are and and their experiences and the fun they've enjoyed and the camaraderie. Uh, I suppose at a personal level, is it the armed forces? It's not, but all my children have had relationships with the cadets. Um, during their time at school. So uh, at that level, I have, and they've enjoyed that very much. But no, I mean, it's always struck me that because we, we, we have a professional, we have a small professional army and Navy and Air Force. Um, but I would say my contact beyond personal friendships is, is very limited. Right. I mean, obviously, conservatives generally seem to be, um, you know, very, very in favour of the armed forces. You know, I think that might be kind of a, a respect for institutions. But could you nail down why you think the, the UK armed forces are valuable and perhaps why you, you think or why you and your colleagues feel that we should have a, a military deterrent? Well, I'm very proud of our armed forces. I just think they do. Um, they, they sort of represent the the best of our values and the best of who we are. Uh, I mean, my grandparents were in the armed forces, obviously in the Second World War. My father was a, was, was a soldier, sadly invalided out. He wanted to be a professional soldier, but um, was invalided out um, of the army, much to his disappointment and regret. But they are, they are the, I think they're just the best of what we represent. And I just, I, I feel, I mean, it's awful, isn't it? Because I haven't been in the armed forces, but I take great pride in what they do. And um, gosh, it's, it's no more complicated than that, is it? And, and I just feel that when our troops are deployed, um, they're going to do a good job. They're going to do a good job and maintain our standards and our values. And I suppose that, that that is one of the reasons why I and other colleagues have found it so difficult to see so many of them persecuted and prosecuted, um, often on multiple occasions for uh, alleged things that happen, say, in Iraq or Afghanistan, and far further back now in, in Northern Ireland. And I think our armed forces, uh, to some extent, have been, have been let down by their political masters and we've been too slow to throw a protective arm around them. Of course, where, where you know, criminality has been committed, there needs to be an intervention. Of course there does. And I think the armed forces would say very much that is the case. 
but where we have seen um, multiple persecutions, multiple question marks placed over individuals over and over again, that is uh, deeply concerning. But that, that's hopefully something that the Armed Forces Bill that's currently on its way through. Well, I hope so. I mean, I think, I, think, I think Johnny Mercer is, is just a, a, a fan, as a fantastic Armed Forces Minister. And from the very moment he stood up in the House of Commons and made his maiden speech, I think he has just talked a great, a great deal of sense and has been totally unafraid to tackle difficult issues. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, people like um, Johnny in politics, they're, they're very, very good at, at reaching out and connecting with the wider UK public. Do you think that the wider public have that respect for the armed forces um, and, and, and value and cherish them? Or do you think perhaps, you know, I mean, we, we, we've obviously had a, a Labour leader previously who has been vocally opposed to UK armed forces. You know, how do you think the, the public and, and I see think the UK? That- I think that caused a lot of traditional Labour voters a great deal of pain because a lot of traditional Labour voters in the past, their sons and daughters would have would have served in the armed forces. And although our armed forces are much smaller than they were once, there will still be many, many families um, from across this country who who have proudly supported the Labour Party, whose sons and daughters serve in the armed forces. And it's it's um, let's let's look at this. I mean, we have Major Dan Jarvis in the House of Commons, who is a, a, an extremely experienced and well thought of former soldier sitting as as a Labour member of Parliament and Labour mayor. So I think there's great pride across the country for our armed forces. I think that pride is felt um, in many parts of the Labour Party and in the hearts of many Labour members of Parliament. Uh, I don't think the previous leadership reflected that level of affection, but I think the armed forces are certainly the nation's armed forces, and our love of them is is not um, is not sort of uh, constrained or refined to any particular confined, sorry, confined to any particular political party. Yeah, I mean the the Conservatives have obviously um, made a, a you know they've made a significant. Um, funding settlement for the armed forces at the largest that they've seen um, in peacetime history. Um, and, and I think to a certain extent, you know, the, the prime minister does have a, a bit of a, um, he does have reason to, to, to sort of show, to demonstrate that the, the conservatives and his government are embracing the, the military. Um, do you think that the funding settlement will prompt the, the UK military to kind of look at cyber warfare and space um, or do you think perhaps they'll be channeling money into existing capabilities look again i i i'm not experienced in these things but i think you've got to go to where the threat is and where the threat is emerging so our armed forces have to adapt don't they to to what the situation is today but also what they believe it will be tomorrow so we're going to do, we're always doing things differently. I mean, we went from riding around on horses to um, driving around in tanks. So I mean, that's 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 just that's just fact, and military history suggests that's what happens as we move from the the longbow to the to the flintlock and so on and so forth. So I, I think that clearly the army will 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 adapt and change, and the air force and the navy to what is required and what is needed. And sort of speaking of, you know, we, we were kind of talking about the, the, the Army, Navy and Air Force. Um, 
you know, there are some traditional state actors that have been identified as potentially threatening peace and security in the sort of global world order. And a number of backbench MPs have been quite vocal in calling out, for example, China and Russia. Um, you know, obviously, you could probably talk about this for, for, for hours, and I'm sure you've, you've read into this, you know, better than a lot of people. But, you know, broadly speaking, what are your views on the sort of international situation? And are you kind of are you a hawk or a dove, or do you think those terms aren't really relevant? Well, it's always the usual suspects, isn't it? And I suppose people could say, why do we need these aircraft carriers? Because you project power with aircraft carriers. Uh, you can put a presence um, anywhere around the world with an aircraft carrier. And uh, we, are, we have to have a military capability. I, I loathe this idea that, well, people say, well, the United Kingdom's only a sixth or seventh largest economic power in the world should we really be spending money on our armed forces well i would say if not us who is going to be doing it because we cannot keep relying on the united states of america to provide us with an umbrella we have to play our part and make a contribution and and we do that by having the best kit and the best trained then the best trained armed forces and i do believe we have some of the best kit and we have some of the best trained armed forces and that's our contribution I mean, that, that, your answer quite nicely leads me on to my next question, which is um, sort of looking to the West and looking to the USA. There, there was, I mean, it depends on how you view the, the previous regime, but it certainly looks like there was a kind of uncoupling of the US and the UK in strategic and certainly political terms. Um, do you think the new president, um, Joe Biden, will bring a renewed focus on multilateral decision making? And how do you see the UK's relationship with the USA developing more generally? So the relationship with the US ebbs and flows, doesn't it? But ultimately, um, you want to be best friends with the biggest guy in the room and the United States is the biggest guy in the room. And despite what people say, will remain the biggest guy in the room. I think it's Churchill said, isn't it? And I paraphrase and get it wrong. Once the United States has exhausted all other options, it generally does the right thing. I think Churchill said that. Uh, and look, uh, we are, we, we, they're our cousins. I mean, we, we, we have such a strong relationship with the US and, and so does continental Europe. At the end of the day, uh, we'll, the United States came and took the beaches, liberated France and played a massive part in rescuing Europe from, from fascism. And I know people point out that Russia did a lot of the heavy lifting and America provided Russia with a lot of kit and support. Um, so the US is, 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 is here to stay and uh, it's been through a politically tumultuous four years and I think the seas will remain choppy in America, in the United States for a few years to come, but they are, they are, still, they are still the global player. And speaking of, of, of things that, you know, will, will remain in place and things that hopefully will leave us, um, we, we've done well to avoid um, the, the pandemic and coronavirus, but I've, I've got to bring it up now that we're, we're getting through my questions. So, um, so, Charles, would you mind sort of talking about how the pandemic has affected you personally um, and also maybe talking a bit about how you think behaviour might change um, as we start to see the result of the, the, the so far very successful vaccination programme? Um, or, or whether you know you think things like podcasts and Zoom are, are here to stay. 
Well, I mean, pandemics always accelerate change, and I'm probably about the millionth person to say that. So there's nothing new there. I was talking to a distinguished eye surgeon on the train today, one of the leaders of his generation, and it's dramatically changed what they can do, how they consult, they can consult from distance, uh, because the technology is so much better that hospitals can upload, I don't know what eye surgeons look at, but upload the relevant mm -hmm. photographs and information that allow eye surgeons to really get a very good look at what the problem is. And ultimately, they will always need to see the patient if further work is required but a lot of people as you know travel to and from hospital um when they're not required for operations they're required for consulting so i thought that was fascinating personally uh, what has it meant to me i have spent a lot of time worrying about my constituents who many of whom are having an utterly miserable time worried about their jobs their businesses um, their mortgages their children's future and and that has caused me a huge amount of worry on their behalf. I don't think of myself in this matter, but I, I'm elected to think a lot about them. And I do think a lot about them and I worry a lot about them. And I want things to return to as near normal as soon as possible. I've got a lot of underemployed people that I represent who want to get back to work, who take pride in work, they socialise at work. And it's, it's agony for them not being in work. They would have spent their lives, if not generations, building up businesses that the future of now that those businesses future and uh, are now in question. And this is all of enormous potential worry. And we need to get back to work. We need to get these vaccines out and get people back to doing what they enjoy doing, which is working hard, socializing with their friends and family. And can I say enjoying the pints at the pub and taking their wives, friends and partners out for dinner. So that's an important thing. And husbands out for dinner, might I say. Um, so how do I think things are going to change? All this rubbish, we're going to stop shaking hands, we're going to stop going into the office, it's all nonsense. I suspect that we want to put this behind us as quickly as possible. I can't wait to hug my children again, I can't wait to shake people's hands, I can't wait to do what human beings are doing, which is socialise and be warm and tactile. So I, I, I just think all this it is nonsense, to be honest. And all this idea that we're all going to be happily working at home and never go to the office. Well, most young people and quite quite a lot of middle-aged people like myself love being at the office because that's where we meet interesting people. We socialise, we gain ideas, we build our careers, we represent the interests of those that we represent. I mean, for crying out loud, the great thing about being in Parliament at the moment is there's still a few ministers around and I can, I can grab them and say, look, this is a problem. We need to get it sorted. You can't do that because guess what? Zoom is great, but you have to book in for a Zoom call. You don't bump into someone on Zoom. You have to actually organise it. So, look, I think Zoom is here to stay. I think podcasts are here to stay. I love being on your show, although slightly tongue-tied at times. And that's difficult because remote. when you're talking to someone remotely, I find I become much more tongue-tied than I do when they're in the room, if, if you sort of building on the emotion and the energy that you get in a room. But so I think there will be changes, technological changes. But let me tell you, I think a lot of people will want to put this behind them as quickly as possible and get back to business as usual. Um, so, Charles, before we um, we started recording, you and I were having a conversation and I asked you about um, whether you were you were still going into work and, and whether you were in Parliament. Um, and, and you gave me uh, an answer that would warm the hearts of any uh, a Democrat and leader. I wondered if you would go into why you're still taking the train into work. 
Well, I mean, it's important that I'm in work because I've got a lot of people who have no choice. They've got to be at their supermarket. They've got to be driving the train. They've got to be on the bus. They've got to be working in our hospitals. And I just, and they've got to, some of them are teaching at school the children of key workers. And it's just not good enough for me to expect people to go into work if I'm not going into work myself. Now, I know this is a view that people want to discourage. They want to, um, where people can where it's possible to work from home but my job is to represent my constituents in parliament parliament is still sitting as i've just said there are still ministers around and cabinet ministers who have to be here and it really aids me to be able to represent my constituents directly to those powerful people who can make a difference um and uh it's a great uh, it's a great privilege by the way, being able to come into work. I mean, let's not, it's not a sacrifice, it's a privilege. It really is. Um, I, I feel very sorry for those people, many of them young, but lots of people in their middle years and older who really are struggling. They're at home in small, often cramped environments. They've got lots of pressures on them. Um, they've got childcare and they're expected to do their job. And that is a huge ask of people. And we need to recognize the sacrifice they're making as well. Um, so Charles, I know that you're a busy man. Um, I've got one final question cool. for you. Thank you so much for, for, for your answers so far. Um, we have a lot of uh, listeners who are um, veterans or they kind of share the kind of military values that we espouse or they, you know, in a similar way to most conservatives are, are you know, highly in favor of the armed forces. Um, many of them interested in getting involved in politics, whether that's local or national politics. Is there anything um, any sort of encouragement or words of advice that you would give to um, candidates or people who are, you know, perhaps just looking to become activists? I think politics is is politics is a good thing. I'm not cynical about politics at all. The reason we live in this wonderful country is because of the efforts that we as citizens have made over the generations, but also that politicians have made. It didn't happen by accident. I would say a good route in is to get involved locally with your local association. I would urge everybody always to stay out of small P association politics, if that makes sense. Focus on the people, not what's going on internally. I know it's very easy to get sucked into internal politics, but focus on the outside, not what's going on on the inside. Become invaluable to your community and, and look and and have ambition. There's nothing wrong with ambition, is there? Uh, to, to represent your community at a local level, be it a council level, a district council or a county council level, but also coming on to the bigger stage, which is the parliamentary stage, by all means. If that's what you feel you want to do, give it a go and absolutely have a crack at it. There are many soldiers in parliament. There are some on Labour's benches more on our benches but they all bring a really valuable insight and look i imagine your podcast might be listened to by people who aren't conservatives i think all political parties the labor party particularly could benefit if you are an ex-serviceman or woman and you want to get involved politically all political parties can benefit from having your voices and wisdom on their benches so charles thank you so much for joining us today um, really, really appreciate it. Um, and uh, keep keep up the fantastic work, whether you're in Parliament or whether you're on Zoom or whether you're on the doorstep. Well, I'll certainly keep up the work. I've, I think you've been very generous in the fantastic part, but I'll certainly keep up the work. Our next guest is Leila Boosberg. 
Leila is the Coalition for Global Prosperity's Senior Events Officer and has a background in international development and climate change campaigning. She previously worked at the Climate Coalition as a campaign executive, overseeing all member relationships and leading on aspects of big campaign moments. Prior to this, Leila worked at the Catholic Agency for Overseas Development as a parliamentary assistant, organising the annual parliamentary reception. Leila is extremely passionate about climate justice and global development. Hi, Leila. Thank you so much for joining us um, on this month's episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself um, and what your role is at the Coalition for Global Prosperity? Yeah, absolutely. Um, hi, James. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. Um, I feel like if you would have asked me this question before lockdown, I would have had so much to say and I would have sounded really exciting. Um, but since lockdown, my hobbies have like drastically changed and it's just consisted of sort of reading constantly. I really enjoy reading memoirs um, and just sort of trying to navigate campaigning online. I'm extremely passionate about social justice. And before lockdown, it felt as though there were really clear, obvious steps on how to make your voice heard. Um, you know, go to surgery to meet your MP and discuss local issues that concern you. Um, you go to demonstrations, etc. There was just, it was just really easy to navigate. But mm. now it's all online. You have to be quite creative with how you sort of want to cut through. Um, so that's been taking up a lot of my time as well. But I am really, really lucky that my job aligns with my passions outside of work. Um, so as CGP's senior events officer, I have the opportunity to organise events on a wide range of development topics. Um, so our last two events were on gender equality and protecting civilians in conflict zones, which, you know, we partnered with Conservative Friends of Armed Forces, and we'll talk about that hopefully a little bit later. But I'm not an expert on any one topic, so I'd have to say that like, one of my favourite parts of, of my job is the research side of the role and, you know, writing up the rationales behind each event and, you know, why it's so important to organise events on, on, on different um, development issues. And so, um, Leila, when did you join the organisation and what were you up to before? Yeah, so I only joined CGP in September, um, so I'm relatively new. It feels like I haven't been there for that long just because I've only met my team once. Um, it's all yeah. been over Zoom. Um, but prior to CGP, I worked for the coalition, um, the Climate Coalition, and I was there for just over a year. And I worked as a campaigns executive, um, which I really enjoyed. And similar to CGP, um, the coalition brought together a wide variety of voices to sort of raise their voice on climate change and lobby the government. Um, so at CGP, we sort of bring different voices together um, on development issues and, and try to sort of dig deeper in, um, into how and why Britain needs to continue to be a global leader. And for um, CGP, do you produce reports and, and how, how do you kind of get your message and get your campaigning out there for, um, for any of our listeners who haven't sort of come across you? Yeah, so there are different strands to our work at CGP. Um, we're quite a small team. There's only six of us um, and I only work on events and sometimes it might cross over if there's something really big happening. Um, for example, when we had the um, aid cuts, the mm. budget cuts and the aid was cut, I was you know working with the rest of the team on, on trying to make the case for aid um but 
we produce um, resources. So if you go onto our website, there's a page where um, you can find our recent red wall polling. Um, we've also got an educational pack on interna international development um, where you can find out all the work that DFID and UK Aid has achieved. Um, and that includes case studies of, you know, how the UK makes the world healthier, safer, more prosperous for everyone. Yeah, so as well as um, resources, um, my strand of work would be public and private events. So again, it's over to our website to find out um, what events we have coming up and also um, keeping an eye on our social media as we have a fantastic comms manager who is um, always posting about upcoming events. And obviously you were instrumental in organising last month's event uh, on the impact of civilians in armed conflict, which um, we, we partnered with together um, along with War Child. Um, and I really, really enjoyed working with you and with um, the, the whole team at, C at CGP. Um, could you talk to me and talk to our listeners a little bit about how, how you come to decide to do an event and, and which partners you choose, you know, the content, and then also a bit about the process, like how you bring together people from you know with different backgrounds but who kind of make up your sort of expert panels yeah absolutely and um, so that particular event we actually were in conversation at first with the NGO War Child about their recent report that they published um, titled being a force for good how the British government the FCDO and MOD can better protect children in armed conflict and at the time, the FCDO had just been formed and we thought it's the right time to sort of come together and bring different voices together to discuss how we can guarantee that civilian protection is included across sort of different um, policy work streams um, and how that can you know, be delivered and make the most impact on the ground. Um, so we knew from being in conversation with Warchild that this was really important time to do this event. Um, and then we reached out to you, James, to ask if um, Conservative Friends of Armed Forces would be interested in partnering with us on the event. Um, and not, not just because you would bring, you know, such great experience as a former infantry captain and also an Afghanistan veteran, it's that first-hand experience that you can bring to the event. But, you know, as a whole, we just thought that Conservative Friends of Armed Forces could bring a lot to the event and, and, you, and you did. Um, oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm, thank you. I'm glad you think so. Yeah. Yeah. So it, I thought after the event, I, I had to say it was one of my favourite events just in terms of learning so much on the night. So, so much was discussed during the event from, you know, how we can ensure that Britain's defence and development assets work hand in hand to, you know, what role can the UK play in building fragile states towards peace and prosperity? You know, James Sunderland touched on that quite a bit. And at the end of it, I came away with so much more knowledge and passion on the topic. And that's definitely because of the fantastic um, co-hosts and the panel. I mean, um, you can probably say as well, James, you know, hearing Stephanie as well, who works for Save the Children and is in Afghanistan right now, hearing her sort of first-hand experience was really sort of one moving and it really connects not just to your head with like facts and figures, but also your heart and mm. makes you want to do something about it. Um, but also then on the other hand, you had Baroness Hodgson and James Sunderland who were just given real quality, impactful information because they're so knowledgeable on the topic. Um, so I thought we had just a real excellent um, panel on the night. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we had great feedback from the members who who joined us. And I was really grateful to, to you for sort of facilitating that. Um, and, and obviously, you know, my organisation massively benefits from, from that because 
we're kind of a group of people who are all interested in the armed forces. And, and of course, there are so many different um, facets of governance and and how we manage you know operations and democracy and how that all feeds into that that kind of melting pot so we were we were really really grateful to um to, to your organization and to you for um for for putting on the the um the event and um, what speaking of events what's what's next what have you got coming up that our listeners might be interested in uh, joining and how can they get more involved or or how can they reach out to you yeah so We will be hosting many more virtual events over the coming months. And I know probably a lot of your listeners are thinking right now, I've got so much Zoom fatigue. I'd rather, (laughs) (laughs) I completely get it, but we're going to be trying to sort of make it as interactive as possible and different formats and trying to make it as interesting as we can until we can hopefully meet in person sometime soon. But, you know, you can definitely expect events around big moments of the year, such as G7 in June, COP26 in November and then obviously we then have party conferences in in September October time so throughout the year we'll have big moments where we'll be trying to convene um, voices and make the case for aid so do keep an eye out on our website um, and our Twitter feed to hear more and I'll send you the links to both of those James to um, to share but also just if I've said sort of anything so far you can always contact me um, on my email address I'd love to sort of discuss anything I've said um, and that's Layla at coalitionforglobalprosperity.com Layla thank you so much uh, for joining us on the show and thank you so much for organizing the event um, in January uh, I know that all of the, the attendees had, had a great time and got some really positive feedback and it sounds like you did too um, good luck uh, over the coming year and hopefully um, we can we can organize either an event or, or we can work together in the future absolutely thank you so much james thanks very much Layla. bye-bye yeah so obviously you know the military community and supporters of the military have been um you know pretty pretty pleased with the most recent um funding settlement for the uk armed forces uh, which you know is a sort of four-year settlement, which is the the highest in in peacetime memory. Um, that the same can't be true of aid and development spending, which I know the Coalition for Global Prosperity is obviously a, a huge um, exponent of. How did that um, announcement affect you um, and and your team? And what do you think the sort of steps are moving forwards? Yeah, that's a really good good question, James. I th- I think. For anyone, sort of with my CGP hat on and off, it was a really difficult announcement, particularly when, um, you know, I've campaigned on on international development for a long time. Um, It's an announcement that nobody wants to hear, but we're in exceptional times right now. So you have to do sort of um, exceptional things to get through. But Mm. I... At CGP, you know, we were set up because we inherently believe that the UK is a global leader in international development and... Um, over the last two years, DFID has achieved so much, you know, just to name a few of those achievements, you know, DFID has given 64.5 million people more access to clean water, sanitation or hygiene. You know, it's helped to ensure Mozambique was landmine free by 2015 and, you know, reached over 13.4 million people with emergency food assistance, including 5.6 million women and girls. So if we know that UK aid makes the world a safer, healthier and better off place, you know, we must continue to use this 
what we have of the aid budget effectively. And at the coalition, we're going to continue to work to bring together a wide variety of aid supporters with backgrounds across military, faith, business and political communities. And, you know, continue to organise public and private events to explore how the UK can continue as a global leader. Our final guest is Tom Tugendhat, MP. Colonel Tom is the MP for Tunbridge and Marling, having been first elected in 2015. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan as a reservist and also in a civilian capacity for the Foreign Office. He later served as a military assistant to the Chief of Defence Staff. In Parliament, Tom is Chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and is the head of the China Research Group. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your early life and your upbringing and what prompted you to get involved in the military? Look, like many people these days, actually, I had no family connections to the military. I mean, my uncle had done national service in the 50s or something like that. And, you know, obviously a couple of relatives had served in the in the Second World War. But, you know, that was, that was a long time ago, to put it mildly. Um, but I first got interested in the military largely because I had a very good friend at university who was a cadetship officer um, back then with the Welsh Guards. And... Uh, when I went as a journalist in one of my first jobs, I went as a journalist to Beirut. Um, I saw the work that the United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon was doing, UNIFIL, and the Irish, the Nepalese, the um, Indians and others, and how they were serving um, what I thought was a very noble interest. So, I, you know, protecting people. So that's that's really what got me interested in the military. And then can you talk a little bit about your your journey? So what, what how, how did you get involved? Sure. So I then, uh, I then, uh, when I came back to the United Kingdom, I, I, I became a management consultant. And um, for anybody who's done that, uh, yeah, I was bored. And uh, and so, um, so I, you know, I was looking for something else to do at the time, at the same time. And um, this friend of mine, who was uh, by then a Welsh Guards officer, um, found a unit which was called the TA Pool of Linguists, which was a bunch of people who spoke funny languages who the army could then call upon. And I joined that and I joined as a, obviously as a, uh, an officer cadet. And then um, eventually um, uh, was hoping to be commissioned in it. And um, and actually my life took a bit of a strange turn because although I joined in, I think it was 2000, uh, some of you may remember that in 2001, something else happened, 9-11. And, uh, and so the fact that I spoke Arabic suddenly became uh, you know very useful it went from being quirky to very useful and I got mobilized to go and fight in Iraq and uh, and so that's when I transferred to the intelligence corps and uh, and had a, a an amazing time serving with some fantastic Royal Marines who uh, were just the best people I've ever met and, and without kind of wanting to to sort of go over you know war dits um, can you can you tell us a bit about your deployments and a little bit about some of the people you met and maybe some of the memories that kind of stand out most in your mind I mean, look, like anybody who's uh, who's served, I mean, I can tell you a collection of stories, some more um, absurd. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'll be careful how I'll be careful how I put this. Um, but, you know, you, you could everybody can tell stories about, you know, mobilisation and all the rest of it. But one of my first, what can I say, one of my first uh, memories of, of soldiering was simply the fact that um, when we arrived in Iraq in 2000 and three uh, nearly 20 years ago now uh, for the invasion it was 
the extraordinary focus and good humour that everybody had. And it, it, uh, it's given me a lot for the Royal Marines that uh, I hope I will never lose. They're an amazing bunch. And it was a huge privilege to serve alongside them. But uh, as I got to know them better and we served together in Iraq and Afghanistan and places like that, what was, what was wonderful was you, 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 became the, uh, you, you, you became part of a series of very, very long and intricate jokes that had years in the uprunning and years in the playing out, quite literally years. And so you would see a joke that had started in Iraq in 03, not even concluded, but certainly built upon in Sangin in 2013 or in Kabul in 2014 or whatever it was. And, uh, and some of them are still playing out today. And so when, did you, how does it work as a reservist? Did you, did you leave um, when you were elected or are you still part of a reserve unit? What's your situation now? No, I'm still in. Um, I'm still in. I, don't, I haven't done very much for a very long time. Um, sadly, parliamentary duties have, and uh, not just parliamentary duties, domestic duties. My, uh, uh, I've now got two kids. So, uh, you know, going away uh, on top of the parliamentary work is really not easy. Um, and so that's been, uh, you know, that's obviously tricky. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's uh, it's something that I think matters very much. So I, you know, as soon as I, as soon as I can, I'd love to do a bit more time. My wife. And, yeah, well, if, if you can, if you can carve the time out, yeah. Um, so I mean, we've talked a little bit about your your military background. You you speak very enthusiastically about it. You obviously have a lot of fond memories. Um, but what kind of caused you to move into the political sphere, or was that a direction you were you were always travelling? in in parallel no it wasn't i mean i i wasn't i wasn't even slightly involved in politics really before um i mean, I mean very slightly involved in politics before but but so minorly as to be largely irrelevant um the for me it came about because my last job in the military i was very lucky um i worked with an amazing uh, guy for a number of years first in afghanistan very remotely and then in the uk and that was general uh, David Richards, uh, who ended up as chief of the defence staff, but was the um, Allied commander in Afghanistan and just a fantastic guy. And um, then he became chief of the general staff and I joined his strategy team. And then when he became CDS, he, I, I, he made me his MA and so I was his military assistant for three years. And it was, a, you know, I learned an awful, um, you know, huge amount. And uh, as anybody who's worked closely with anybody else knows, there are very few people who you leave four years of very, very close intimate work with and think more of them at the end than you did at the beginning. It is pretty unusual, but I have to say that I was, I was lucky. I, um, I, I, I think even more of David Richards. I'm, already, I'm more impressed by him every time I think of the decisions he took. He was an extraordinary man to work for uh, and a, a great privilege to work for. But one of the things that working for the Chief of the Defence teaches you is that interface between politics and uh, the armed forces and you know seeing him go across the road to number 10 and uh, being part of preparing him for discussions with the prime minister uh, helping to manage the relationship with number 10 with the outer office and the civil servants and so on was really challenging um, and really interesting but you you learn that there is a point at which you know the orders stop and the uh, and the politics starts and so that was where you know, if you don't like the orders, there's only one place to change them. You've got to get elected. And can you talk? I mean, obviously, um, on our, uh, our our sort of membership and our and our listeners, there there will be some 
budding candidates and some people who are interested in just getting a bit more involved in politics generally. Can you kind of go into a few details about where you were, you know, perhaps locally and then how you came to, to, um, to the position you're in today? Look, I, I mean, if you're a budding candidate, I have only this to say, do something else first. Um, <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be the armed forces. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are interested in the armed forces and you may already be in as a as serving, you know, in a regulars or the reserves. Um, but there are many other ways in which people serve our country. And, and, you know, the obvious ones at the moment are, of course, in the NHS and the medical facilities and all the rest of it. But, you know, running a good business, you know, employing people, these are ways to serve our country too. You know, we should be clear that, you know, service and duty are not just public sector factors. They're also, you know, they're also, if you start a business and you start employing people and you pay tax and you, you know, and, 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 you, uh, and you support the local economy and the local community, that's service. That's a form of service. And we should be proud of it. We should be just as proud of it as we would be of a, you know, a doctor or a policeman or whatever. And, um, and so I think it's, it's important that we, um, we recognize that. So if you're, if you're interested in, uh, in, in continuing to serve through political areas, well, you know, I hope very, very much that you will think about it. And don't forget, you don't have to be an elected person to serve in that sense, um, but do, do get involved because there's, a, there's an illusion at the moment uh, amongst too many people, and I'm sure that won't apply to anybody here, but I mean, the democracy is what happens, you know, once every five years, or, well, actually at the moment it feels more like once every two years, but, you know, it, it, democracy is what happens in a polling station. And of course that's not true. Democracy is how we talk to each other, how we engage, how we support ideas and generate the best for our community. And so whether you're, you know, just politically active, as in get in touch with your representatives, make sure they know what you think and support them when they're doing the right thing and criticise them when they're not, or whether you're running for uh, parish, borough, district, county or national government, you know, you're involved in democracy and getting people involved in democracy is absolutely fundamental to making sure that we have a fair and just society. There really isn't a shortcut and it isn't, there isn't a trick. You can't do it on Facebook. You've just got to get to know people and you've got to engage with ideas. And so I hope that if anybody's thinking of becoming a candidate, first of all, support democracy before you do that. Um, so Tom, um, obviously the, the, the values and standards um, of the, the military are really hammered in to, um, to, to people who are, who are involved in the services. Um, what kind of values and standards do you think um, a good member of parliament needs to, needs to kind of have or aspire to, to, to have or embody? Well, that's a very good question. I'd say, look, I, I mean, I have to say, I think the values and standards of the armed forces are, are applicable in all walks of life. I don't think, you know, I mean, the armed forces certainly identify them more clearly, but but that doesn't mean that they don't apply to everyone. And I think I think they certainly do apply to politics, you know. Um, I think respect, I think courage, I think integrity, I, you know, I think these things matter. Um, and they matter in all walks of life. It doesn't mean we all live up to them all the time. I know we all fall short. Um, but it's, you know, it's like they say in Sandhurst, Sandhurst is a centre of excellence. Excellence, not just, oh, sorry, not because everything that happens there is excellent, but because people are striving for excellence. And I think, you know, in striving for it, you know, that's what we should be doing. In, indeed. 
Um, you're, um, you're currently the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and have been since 2017. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what the job entails and what you have been able to achieve or what you've had access to that you might not otherwise in that role? Well, look, I mean, the job entails holding the government to account on matters of foreign policy. So, you know, specifically scrutinising the Foreign Office and trying to help them out and you know, being a friendly critic, um, you know, we're not, there to, we're not there to beat them up, we're there to see what we can do to help. So, um, so that's what we do. And there's, um, you know, it's, a, it's, it, it's fascinating, it's challenging. I've just come off a call with a dozen uh, ambassadors, you know, it's a, you're constantly talking to people and engaging with people and trying to find ways through um, difficult international situations. So on that, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, it throws up its challenges because there are, you know, there aren't black and white, right, wrong answers. Everything is is measured and has implications and has a downside. So it's, I have to say, I think it's a, you know, it's, it's a privilege to serve in this role. It's fantastic because you have, a, you have the freedom to say what you think, which you don't in government, of course. Um, but at the same time, you have to maintain I'll try to maintain at least the respect and support of, uh, of of everybody across Parliament because I don't, you know, of course I'm elected, and, you know, and I'm a Conservative MP, so people know they're getting a Conservative viewpoint. That's not a secret. But I am, I'm not working for the government, and I am trying to represent views from across Parliament, even some that I don't agree with. Um, I've sort of got one one last question, and it's kind of a more um, a more thorny question. And I'm sure that you've you've been asked this in numerous different ways over the last few months. But um, you know, obviously, you're you, you've sort of started and are intimately involved in the China Research Group. Um, how how do you see the UK's relationship with China um, currently, and where would you like to see it go? So, look, what I would like to see happen is I would like to see the United Kingdom as a as a friend and partner of China and the Chinese people, uh, seeing us trading openly and fairly with each other. I think that there is a huge opportunity here, not just for the United Kingdom, but actually for China to play a very active uh, and very strong role in the international community. I, nobody is more in favor of China's role in the world than I am. The challenge is that what we're seeing at the moment is not policies that are in the interests of the Chinese people. We're seeing policies that are in the interests of the Chinese Communist Party, and that's not the same thing. The reality is we're seeing um, a, uh, a dictatorship in China seeking to exploit its position and defend its interests. You know, uh, Chairman Xi Jinping has, you know, is one of the richest men in China. Now that's not an accident. And he didn't get it from public service. He got it as a side benefit of public service. And so did many other people in, um, in positions of power. And that level of, uh, you know, challenge is something that we've got to deal with. Now, you know, we've got to understand that all countries have uh, different systems of government and different systems of values. And so we try to hold people to international values, like those set out in the UN Declaration of Human Rights, for example, which recognize individual rights and, and personal liberty. And those are not Western values. They were written, in fact, by a Chinese diplomat, PC Chang, back in the 1940s. And there's no reason that China can't be part of those values today. So, you know, I really do hope that China goes back to the direction of travel it was in in the sort of, from the 1990s to 2010, 11, 12, when it was engaged in reform and participating in the international rules-based system. 
and its influence and its voice was growing. It's only now that under Chairman Xi that the country has stopped to, to become significantly more nationalist, either abroad where you see it exerting more uh, strength and power or internally where you see the assertion of Han Chinese ethnic uh, identity as a, a greater than, for example, Uyghur or Mongol or Tibetan identities, that you start to see a different uh, shape uh, of China. And that's what's concerning. So, you know, I hope very much that China will be back as a strong and important member of the international community because we all need it. Tom, um, is there anything else that you'd like to say to the, uh, the members of CF Armed Forces or any of our listeners? Well, look, first of all, thank you. Um, actively choosing to be involved in politics at any level is fundamental to supporting our democracy and our freedom. So thank you very much for getting involved. And I'm always uh, reminded at moments like this of uh, the US Army Field Manual, which I know uh, CF Armed Forces will definitely have beside their beds and read every, every night. Um, and if, if you remember right at the beginning, it says, every day do one thing to improve your defensive position. And so I, I always have a, a thought on this, you know, what is our challenge for today? What is the one thing we can do today to improve our defensive position? And when you look at things like, you know, the threat that we've just spoken about from China or indeed from uh, you know, disinformation from Russia, the one thing you can do to improve the defensive position of the United Kingdom is support free and open democracy. And that means, you know, calling out misinformation on uh, social media, don't re-spread it, uh, you know, be an honest and fair member of society and encourage other people to take part in our democracy at every level. And if you do that, you're doing one thing to improve our defensive position. So thank you very much, everybody, for being a member. Fantastic advice. Thank you very much, Tom. We hope you enjoyed this month's episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast, and you join us again for next month's.